Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Thursday, July the 25th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Last night, the new British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, announced his first cabinet, and there was certainly a lot of drama, no shortage of it. To discuss all the news and what it means, I'm joined by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly, The Guardian's Brexit correspondent, Lisa O'Carroll, and our own London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, I'm looking at your uh, headline of your story on the page one of the Irish Times this morning. Johnson installs hardline Brexiteers after a cabinet purge. Uh, it's been described as the most dramatic cabinet purge in, I think, many, many decades. Um, did he have to do this, really? No, I don't think he did. I mean, if you look at the extent of it, first of all, the extent of it is enormous. If you think about Harold Macmillan's Night of the Long Knives, he sacked seven people. In all, 17 members of the cabinet, of Theresa May's cabinet, either were sacked or resigned. And many of those that he sacked were not, um, you know, it, it wasn't a purely ideological thing. So, for example, two of the leading Brexiteers in Mrs. May's cabinet, Penny Mordaunt, who was the first female defence secretary, and Liam Fox, International Trade Secretary, they were both sacked. He also sacked people like, say, James Brokenshire, former Northern Ireland secretary, who actually backed Boris Johnson. So uh, on the one hand, he packed the senior uh, posts in in his uh, cabinet with hardline Brexiteers, very hardline Brexiteers like Dominic Raab, who was Brexit secretary and uh, who was also a candidate for the leadership. And Priti Patel, uh, who's the new home secretary, who's a, a, who voted against Theresa May's deal three times. Uh, you remember? on the third occasion, both Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab voted for it. So on the one hand, you had what appeared to be an ideological purge, but then you also had something where everybody who backed Jeremy Hunt, like almost all of them, were purged. And uh, and and so and and there was even a kind of a detail where those who didn't those who he sacked uh, who uh, you know who didn't back Hunt they were often given a chance to resign rather than be sacked. So it was it appears to have been both a personal thing and to do with personal loyalty as well as ideology. Lisa, can I ask you? We heard an awful lot over the last week or so in the run up to to Boris Johnson actually taking power about how he he uh, while he would. Uh, bring more Brexiteers into the cabinet and it would be more Brexit-focused cabinet. There would also be some element of the One Nation Toryism, which he was associated with a little earlier in his career. We don't really see that so much in the final uh, faces in the cabinet, do we? No, not at all. Um, I think it was interesting to hear his new secretary to the Treasury on Radio 4 here this morning. His message was, we are toughening up. That is a message to the EU. I think everybody sees um, this as attack to the right. Um, this is uh, uh, Boris building a team which is demonstrating um, from the get-go that he is ready to have a fight um, from day one, um, that he's determined to take on the EU on his terms, not on theirs, um, and that leaving on October the 31st 
is not just an empty threat. He mentioned it during the campaign trail as something that would happen, do or die. And yesterday it was uh, uh, leaving on October the 1st, no ifs or buts. He's basically saying, I will um, self-immolate on October the 1st if I do not deliver this or deliver, deliver it as near as can be within a few weeks. Um, let's remember, if, if he did uh, get a deal, it would have to be ratified um, with um, things like the trade bill, etc. Need would need to happen in Parliament. So, yeah, it's terribly interesting. Domin- the appointment of Dominic Cummings, I think, really demonstrates his determination. He's been throwing hand grenades at the establishment for 20 years. Could you explain to our listeners who who Dominic Cummings is exactly? He he was the director of Vote Leave. He was the guy um, who Benedict Cumberbatch played in that movie um, about the Leave campaign. He is, I was described by the former head of civil service yesterday as anarchic, arrogant. He will fill the civil service with trepidation. He has taken on a role as the, he is the brains. He's um, you know, a ruthless um, ideologue. Um, but he is the big beast who's going to be um, Johnson's enforcer. I read this morning that all the SPADs, the special advisors throughout Whitehall, um, be, will be reporting to him. He's the kind of the chief executive. Tearing up the rule book and taking on the um, uh, the civil service, which is something the ERG have um, wanted for some time. Dennis, is this a cabinet built for 100 days and for setting up the UK for no deal? Yes, I think it is. It's certainly, as Lisa says, it's it's a kind of vote leave takeover. So the a number of the people who are involved in the campaign, both the politicians and people like Dominic Cummings and other operatives, have moved into central positions in Downing Street. And one of the things about Dominic Cummings, he worked for Michael Gove in the Department of Education some years ago, and he took on what he described as the blob, which was the kind of the education establishment and the uh, civil service. And so his his mission, he's written a great deal. Uh, about what he believes in. And he believes, for example, that the entire machinery of government, uh, everything about the way it's structured is outdated. And he'd like to see government learning from Silicon Valley, from NASA. He's got all of these ideas about how you structure things. But he's also uh, got particular ideas about how you run a campaign. And one of the interesting things that happened yesterday was that last night, the Conservative Party launched hundreds of Facebook ads, individualized different Facebook ads, which were also a data capture exercise. So it's quite clear that this, that whether he's heading for an election in October or not, it's quite clear that this government is going to be on a campaign footing from the beginning. Now, what he set his uh, target on October the 31st. He says, you've got to get out, do or die. It's quite clear also that what one of the first things he wants to do is to wipe out the Brexit party. And so by uh, presenting himself as the true believer, the voice of Brexit, uh, he's hoping that he can snuff them out on the right, uh, to his right. If you look at the EU strategy and the Brexit strategy, and if you look at what he said as he entered Downing Street yesterday, he said uh, that he believed that they could get a deal and that this deal would be better than uh, the deal that the, that Mrs May was offered, that there would be no backstop, that they managed to keep the border open without having the backstop. But then he said, if the Europeans refuse to negotiate with us, we might have to leave without a deal. And so what you've got now in his government is two strands. One is led by this former diplomat diplomat David Frost, a former British ambassador to Denmark, he will be leading uh, an effort to try to get a deal. So of coming up with some sort of an offer or proposal to the European Union. And then on the other hand, you'll have Michael Gove and Dominic Raab ramping up the preparations for no deal. So what he's preparing for is, first of all, to see if he can get some sort of deal from Europe. And then at the same time, preparing for the blame game 
so that he blames Europe and particularly Ireland, actually, if uh, he decides to go for a no-deal Brexit. And speaking of Ireland, Fiac, um how do you think Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney are going to be viewing the events of the last 24 hours? Um, I think they will be expecting some of the tone and rhetoric that we heard yesterday, but I suppose the cabinet makeup may have convinced them, that, OK, that... This is the Boris Johnson who may follow through at no deal. It's not the Boris Johnson who could turn in his head and forget everything he said in the course of a campaign or the course of two to three years. They have been expecting this initial flurry, this aggressive uh, stance from Johnson. They have been expecting the blame to be apportioned to them in the event of no deal or an attempt to do so. You saw Simon Coveney try and get in the front foot on the Marshall on Sunday and even two weeks ago when they outlined their the latest no deal update, he said this would be Britain's fault. So they are preparing for it. In terms of what they view as a significant offer, I cannot see how anything Johnson will table will be acceptable to Ireland or the EU. Like if he's not talking about a tweak to the backstop, which can be, you know, keyhole surgery to bring in a Northern Ireland only backstop like keyhole surgery to the withdrawal agreement or a jimmied up review clause in the political declaration. I cannot see how Ireland can accede to anything that he may ask if what he asks is credible. Interestingly, I was speaking to somebody senior in government yesterday as all this was unfolding and... Um, the news about Dominic Cummings came in and the news then about David Frost came in and I think people say oh, we, we kind of know Frost we know we know of him so that would speak to Dennis's point there about him being the person who's going to go off and look for a deal if there is to be one now they fully expect either Johnson to want to come here or Varadkar I think is open to going to London if, if the Johnson administration wants that in the coming weeks but they're not sure about how tactically he's going to play that next the, the, the view is if he is serious about a deal, but you know the offer might not be credible. Why would he waste his capital going to Dublin, Paris, Berlin, Brussels in the coming weeks to be told no? So they're going to be keen to see does he send Dominic Rab, for example, to go over and you know kick the shins of people in Dublin and Brussels and Paris, or is he going to come himself? And Lisa, what's the time frame on this? How soon are we likely to see the initial proposal on on Brexit from from the Johnson government? My impression is fairly quickly. Um, I mean, it was um, such an incredible um, river yesterday of events. Um, it was difficult to see where the detail was, but the cabinet is meeting this morning. I think we it's going to be a very short cabinet. And Boris Johnson said he will not be taking um, any of August off. Um, the executive, certainly the, the, the Whitehall machinery, will also have worked out that you know August is going to be a peak. But I, just to pick up on Felix's point, I think there's um, there's a danger here that this is going to very, very quickly turn into, you know, a combination of an, of an election campaign and uh, an attempt to extinguish the, the Brexit party. And that's going to make it very difficult for Varadkar and Simon Coveney, because don't forget, these are the ERG, they've taken over, they, they are, you know, the vote leave have taken over the cabinet. They are very, very vocal. They are very strident. They are very ideological and they get a lot of airtime in Britain. Varadkar and Coveney will find that very difficult to cut through. <laughs> Um, and it will be very, very difficult because um, we haven't seen the, the detail of the, their arguments as to how they can justify no compromise on the on the backstop versus um, visiting a no deal on, on Ireland. So I think very quickly um, uh, the British cabinet will be will be making Vracar complicit in 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 um, the no deal. Um, and I think that we're going to see that very, very quickly. There is a, you, you heard a teacher guest saying in the Six O'Clock News um, speak of the, the, the numbers in the House of Commons. And there is a view in Dublin that 
to sit back and wait and see what the House of Commons does, that, that he, the numbers aren't there to push no deal through the Commons. So perhaps just... But no deal doesn't have to be pushed through the Commons. It well, needs to be no, blocked in the It needs to be blocked, the, excuse me, you're correct, the and there is a possibility, could, like how do you difference. block it? It has to be emotional confidence. So it seems the initial thinking in Dublin is to sit, sit back and see what happens. Like if he is going to go for an election, why would Dublin make a move now before an election? when you don't know what the outcome is. Like, you could have Boris Johnson back in again who wants to go out, no deal on October 31st. You could have a Labour-Liberal coalition with support from the SNP, which goes for a much softer Brexit or no Brexit at all with a second referendum. So I think you're not going to see much budge from Dublin until very late in this process. And the whole point is, it's such a high-wire process. It's going to be so late in the game before any <coughs> compromise are reached. You heard a teacher yesterday saying, well, there isn't a European Council until the middle of October, which there isn't the next European Council. I think it's the 17th, 18th of October. So, like, the EU is not going to have an emergency European Council to change its negotiating guidelines because Boris Johnson is making noise in London. That's not going to happen. So the action we're not going to, is not going to, we're not going to see until mid-October. And Dennis, I mean, one of the outcomes of this purge, of course, is that if anything, it makes Boris Johnson's task in the Commons more difficult because it puts more rebels on the Tory backbenches, um, and it makes the, the, the it makes them more likely to rebel and perhaps even to vote no confidence if some of them said they would do in the event of an impending No Deal. How do you think he's baked all that into his plans of how to handle the next the next three months? I think that's certainly true. I think one of the calculations is, though, that, and it's true if you talk to almost any uh, of these rebels. I was speaking the other day to uh, one of the uh, the Tory MPs who voted in favour of uh, Dominic Grieve's amendment last week, which would block uh, the suspension of Parliament. And uh, he was saying they're prepared to do all kinds of things. There are so many things that lots of people would never have considered voting for before. But one thing that almost none of them are prepared to do is to vote against their own government in a, in a confidence vote. And one reason for that is that it really is the end if you vote against your own government. It's the end of you as a Conservative MP. You can never come back after that. But the other is that they fear the idea of putting Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street. So Jeremy Corbyn is, in a sense, uh, one of uh, one of Boris Johnson's best cards to play here because he can say, "Here's your choice between uh, you know this the choice of backing me or putting Corbyn in there." And then also the other problem for the uh, for the rebels is how do they actually stop? Uh, a no-deal Brexit. And one straightforward way is that you revoke Article 50, you just cancel it. Uh, but that's a very extreme step uh, for most of them to, to take. And so it, it, what remains to be seen is what kind of creative ways around uh, all of this that Parliament, that MPs, with probably the help of the Speaker, John Burko, will find once they come back in the autumn. But I think the other thing is just to go back to what uh, Lisa was talking about in terms of, of what the deal is, or the proposal is going to be. There has been a kind of of a war for Johnson's ear uh, over the past few weeks uh, among Brexiteers. And so on the one hand, you had, say, Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, who's returned as Attorney General, who basically has been saying, let me take up where I left off last time in Strasbourg. You remember he uh, was unable to give uh, the legal advice, which uh, endorsed fully uh, the, the final concession that Theresa May got. And basically what he wanted was to have some legal guarantee that Britain was able to escape from the backstop, that it could leave unilaterally in some way. 
And what he uh, was suggesting to Johnson was, let me go and try to get this. And uh, and that, you know, and if we can get all of this, then maybe we'll be able to get this deal through with just a few small changes. And then on the other hand, you've got the more hardline Brexiteers who are saying, actually, the backstop isn't the only problem with this withdrawal agreement. The whole thing is terrible. And really, we should be going for, uh, you know, just tear this thing up and go for a completely different deal or else just go straight for an deal Brexit and it's going to be fine. So uh, what I think you, you, you may see over the next few days or the few weeks is that the proposal that they come up with is something a bit more than uh, Jeffrey Cox was asking for. But nonetheless, what they will try to do is to get it to some, you know, close to to the, the region where it would be regarded as a potentially negotiable demand by the European Union, that they could at least start talking about it. And for those Brexiteers who don't want a, a no deal on the on the 31st of October, Lisa, um, do they think that's achievable? I keep seeing all these kind of coverage in the in the UK over the last week or so. And we had a, a journalist from The Spectator on last week. I sort of have a, a sense that um, that that this kind of much harder line approach will cause the Irish government to shift. And if the Irish government shifts, then everything else follows in terms of the EU's negotiating position. Do you think that there, there, there's an actual belief that that is the case in, in London at the moment? I don't think so. I, I, I entirely agree with um, Dennis' assessment there because you have the likes of the ERG and remember it's not a, an entire ERG cabinet but you have the likes of Mark Francois who time and time again is the withdrawal agreement is dead. It's as dead as um, uh, the you know Monty Python dead parrot. Um, it's not going to be revived. The EU have said they're not going to reopen it so that they're, they're dovetailing on that narrative. Um, and that part, wing of the party want to go straight to um, the WTO and GAT24, which, of course, the Attorney General, Jeffrey Cox, has, we we believe, has um, advised Boris Johnson that, that won't work. Um, and, in fact, this is one of the reasons why Liam Fox was um, fired, too, um, because he's a, a Brexiter, um, uh, but uh, told Cox publicly, or sorry, Johnson publicly, that the GAT24 wouldn't work um, from November the 1st. So, I mean, I can't see it. You've got the people like uh, Penny Morden, et cetera, going to the back benches, Brexiters um, uh, on the back benches. You've got people like the uh, Scottish Secretary, David Mundell, saying he won't be joining Phil Hammond, who's the big beast now on the back bench. The back bench, in one way, you could say, is going to be a turbocharged charged rebel movement, no longer led perhaps by Dominic Grieve. Um, but it's going to be it, it's going to be um, quite a mixed um, bag. And I think, um, as Dennis said, um, you've you've got two options. You've got um, Jeremy Corbyn or you've got to stay in power. And I don't think anybody in the Tory party is going to vote um, against themselves. They have, they are on a knife edge in terms of the majority. They've got a, a majority of two. They've got Charlie Elphick, the Dover MP, who lost the whip earlier this week. He's likely to vote with them. And I think we can, we're expecting that they will lose their seat in Wales on uh, next Thursday in the by-election. Um, they'll have some Labour supporters like they can... I'm sure they can be guaranteed the support of people like Kate Hoey and perhaps some other Labour MPs. But, you know, they, they don't have they don't have a majority. And let's not forget the DUP. They've been very, very quiet. I think, sorry, uh, Hugh, if I could come in there, I think that uh, one of the other options, obviously, that Johnson has, and as you mentioned, you know, this this whole uh, event yesterday looked like the start of an election campaign. The fact is, as Lisa said, no, even if you if he manages to get some Brexit deal through, he still is has a, a vanishing uh, working majority. And that just through natural wastage is likely to, to disappear over the next few months. And so he has to have a general election at some stage. If he thinks that he can't deliver 
uh, Brexit on October 31st because of some parliamentary manoeuvre. One of the, the options that he has open to him is to go for a general election before then and to say, look, I'm trying to deliver Brexit, but these people are blocking me. I need you to give me a mandate uh, to do this. And this is where uh, you know the, uh, the the various sort of stratagems of Dominic Cummings and also all of the populist policies that uh, that Boris Johnson announced yesterday would come in. And so it's a high risk strategy because he would have to be sure, on the one hand, that uh, the Brexit Party was effectively dead and wasn't going to deny them any seats. He'd want to be sure that Labour were, remained in disarray and also. Also, that the the seats in Scotland would be safe uh, and that he's not going to lose too many seats to the Liberal Democrats. So it's it's a huge gamble. But in a sense, uh, he's going to have to live in agony until such time as he has a general election. And he might as well put himself out of the misery uh, at the moment he thinks he's got the best opportunity. I I mean, I was listening to, Dennis, I was listening to some analysis of the kind of the the electoral prospects which you laid out there. And among other things, it seemed to be pretty clear that a Boris Johnson government is going to lose seats in Scotland no matter what happens. So therefore, it needs to pick up the equivalent of those seats somewhere else, be it from, you know, formerly Labour seats in the Midlands, Brexit voting seats uh, and elsewhere. It's a really, it's a really tricky mathematical equation to try try and get to a majority. But the kind of boldness of the moves over the last 24 hours might indicate that it still might be something you might go for. Yeah, I think so. And also, uh, and, you know, the fact is that Labour is, you know, it's crawling towards a more coherent position on Brexit. But yesterday, for example, Jeremy Corbyn's spokesman uh, was asked, is this a party of Remain? And he said, we're not in that zone right now. Now, the reason that they're saying that is precisely because of what you were saying, uh, we're talking about about these target seats in the Midlands and the north of England, which are leave voting seats that are held by Labour. And they fear that if they actually become an overtly, par- uh, overtly a, pos- a party of Remain, that they lose those seats. But of course, their problem is that they stand to lose seats to the Liberal Democrats and others in the south of England uh, on a much greater scale if they don't get off the fence a bit on Brexit. So they're uh, slightly caught in a bind. And as you say, uh, the bold gestures of the last 24 hours would suggest that this is somebody who is not going to pussyfoot around and is probably going to go for the audacious move rather than the timid one. Yeah, I just to pick up on the point about, you, you know, um, the bullying of, of Dublin and, you know, the pressure on Dublin. And I think that has seeped through. I, I thought it was interesting watching Newsnight last night. You saw Craig Oliver say, well, we know now that there's panic in Dublin, uh, was his actual phrase. And I, I kind of, I'm not quite sure that's the case yet. I think there's a misreading in London of, of Dublin's position. And I think the idea, the idea that people in government buildings don't see these clips on social media that we all see of last week, oh, we'll just bully, you know, what, what that chap say in politics live last week, we'll just bully or bribe the Irish. And they don't, they don't remember that Sajid Javid said, let's give them 500 million pounds to solve the border. Like this stuff is feeding its way into the psyche in Dublin as well. And to, to think that, like, you know, a huge exertion of pressure will, will make the Irish buckle, I'm, I'm not quite sure because we're in a situation where Ireland and Dublin know that the EU is not minded to give Johnson an inch because they don't like him, they don't want to. They're aware of his reputation around European capitals and in Brussels itself. So I, I'm not quite sure that this idea that if we just lean on Dublin that they, they, they will buckle. And the thing about Leo Varadkar's temperament is... He can be quite one track, you know, he can fixate on something and just see it through. 
like on a much smaller scale when he nearly brought us to the brink of a general election in 2017 when he decided to defy what would be normal practice by throwing somebody under a bus. Now, Francis Fitzgerald eventually did resign. I'm, I'm not quite sure that they think that what they think will happen will happen. And I just fear that if there is no, as Dennis said, pre-October 31st election in the UK where Boris Johnson says, I need a mandate to get out on the 31st, that we are heading for no deal because I don't see an easy way out. Lisa, Boris Johnson's not taking a holiday in August. I think that's the least we could expect of him, given everything that's uh, everything that's going on. The, the, the Commons, Commons does go into recess. So, what is the shape of politics over the next over the next few weeks? Do, do things sort of go quiet for a while, and everybody, you know, do, you know, does, does an assessment of where they stand, or will things actually happen? I think generally what what you see happen is the remainder of July and the beginning of August will be busy and it'll go quietish towards the end of of August. That will be the normal kind of convention. But I think the airways are going to be absolutely chocka with um, Boris stuff. And in regards to Ireland, I think it doesn't really matter. Um, They don't care. This is this is a right wing um, cabinet who don't really have too much interest in, in Irish affairs in Northern Ireland, indeed. Boris Johnson remembers the person who compared the border to um, the border between two boroughs in London and the congestion charge. Um, Ireland's own interest is not high in the minds of, of this cabinet. It'll be a real challenge for Ireland to, uh, uh, to be able to persuade anybody in that cabinet that uh, an, a no deal is not something that they pursue. I, I, do, I just think this is... This is a very, very difficult situation for Vrakar and for Coveney. And I don't think that this style of the EU in the last couple of years is going to have the same impact with this cabinet as it had. Remember, Theresa May, with all her faults and all her weaknesses, you will have heard Irish people off the record saying time again that she got Northern Ireland. It was tough in the first um, year or so together to say the right things and deliver the right commitments about Northern Ireland, but she did and she was on side. And they were very um, appreciative of that. I don't see. I don't think we're going to get that with them, with Boris. I agree. And I, th- I think, you know, one thing that people, in assa- when assessing the position of Dublin and assessing the effect of no deal, sometimes do not take into account that we often see the consequence of no deal through an economic prism. And I think that no deal and the way the government has dealt with Brexit, they don't really, they see it like they know the dangers to the economy, but I think they operated on a different plane. I think that the magnitude of the promises that this government has made, go back to 2017, you know, we will never leave you behind, that message to Northern Nationalists, the way they have staked this whole strategy on peace in Northern Ireland. I just can't see an easy way for our government to back down to Boris Johnson well, in particular. I think the other thing, Fiex, hard to cut across there, but remember Dominic Cummings had a very interesting blog worth going back to on um, on the ERG. And he basically said the negotiations were killed off in the December joint report. That was when we had the backstop written into um, the joint report. Um, so I think it's going to be very, very difficult. I think, yeah, yeah, I think it is going to be an extremely difficult period. The final thought from you, but, Dennis. Sorry, if, if I may say, yeah, on, on, on that, I think uh, it's interesting what Fiek is saying. And that's something which is uh, hugely underappreciated uh, at Westminster and in Whitehall is the extent to which the Irish commitment to, uh, to the backstop, or at least to what the backstop is designed to achieve, goes much deeper than simply uh, the price of beef.
and that uh, and so uh, it's 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 a commonplace that you tend to to think that you your group thinks politically and the other group that you're up against thinks economically and uh, whereas of course you you you, you tend to, to think in both ways i think there is a misreading uh, at westminster they uh, they tend to seize on any indication of any kind of nervousness in Dublin, uh, whether that's by political commentators or by politicians. And they ignore the fact that not only is Leo Varadkar the kind of politician that Fiat describes, but also that you have the opposition parties, particularly Fianna Fáil, who are very, very closely aligned with the government's position on all of this. And so there's no political pressure on uh, Leo Varadkar to cave in. And at the same time, I think probably he would have a certain amount of room for manoeuvre if uh, he needed to make some kind of a small tweak towards the end. I think the danger that we may face, though, is that uh, the assumption on the part of the Europeans is that a no-deal Brexit is not an end state. And so that, uh, that the British will leave, but then they have to come back to seek an arrangement at some stage in the future. but And that's true. But the question is, do they come back within weeks, within months, or does it take much longer? And I think because neither side can read each other accurately, there's a danger that everybody kind of walks into something uh, with a certain set of expectations which turn out to be confounded. I think that's a really interesting point that people assume, oh, you know, no deal will happen. Some people, it was put to me by someone, it's almost like a strike. You have to let the you have to let the union go and strike to get it out of their system and come, they'll come back again to the table. In such an emotionally charged situation, I'm not sure that's a correct assumption. Like if Britain leaves without a deal, you can imagine the mood of the country. It'll be very angry. It'll be very, you know, evocations of the blitz spirit, all that type of stuff. So I'm, I think it's quite a dangerous scenario and I agree with Dennis there. Oh, it's a bleak vista. We'll leave it there. Um, Fasten your seatbelts, hold on to your seatbelts because it looks like it's going to be a bumpy ride. Thanks very much to Lisa Dennis Antifiak for joining us today. And that's it for today's show. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And do stay tuned because we have another podcast coming to you before the end of the week when we'll be broadcasting from the McGill Summer School in Glenties. Uh, Pat Leahy will be interviewing the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar. But until then, goodbye and thanks for listening.